Okay, good evening, everyone. This week's Parsha is Parshas Vayechi. Um, it is Dan's, like Dan mentioned before, Dan's Bar Mitzvah Parsha, so Mazel Dov to you, Dan. On your Bar Mitzvah Parsha, on your Bar Mitzvah, like 10, 15 years ago, you had your Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> so you're looking pretty, pretty, you're looking pretty good. Um, yeah, I save all the jokes for the recording. <laughs> um, so, um, the parasha basically starts off with all the, the, the Jews, all the Jewish people, the, the 70 um, children of, or children and grandchildren of Yaakov, going down to Egypt, down to Mitzrayim. The death of Yaakov, the blessings, the blessing of the two children of Yosef, so Yaakov's grandchildren, the only two grandchildren that got directly blessed, and then the blessing of all the ten tribes, and then some. Then the Jacob Yaakov dies, and that basically ends the parsha with a few little added details. But that basically ends the parsha. And then beginning, and then that really, um, really from now on starts the beginning of the exile in Egypt. Joel, you asked. You wanted to ask a question. Go for it. You just have to unmute yourself. When first. Yaakov, when Yaakov came to Egypt, the the famine ended. Um, when he came to Egypt, did the Klal Yisrael did the, the community begin to grow? I mean, was there was there an explosion of growth of the Jews in Egypt? So, so it seems that for, that just two, you you're bringing up two very like different points. I'm not sure if well, they have anything had a positive effect because when he came down. The family right. did end. It's, know, interesting. Just... it's interesting. It's interesting. You're mentioning two very interesting points, and it seems like counterintuitive, but it actually the opposite. It, when the Jews were going through the, the good times, so to speak, they didn't have those extra blessings. So when they were going through the good times, when ja- Yaakov, Jacob was still alive, and everything was going well for them, when they were learning Torah and Goshen, and life was good, so then everything was simple. And then... As the the exile started, Jacob dies, and then almost like as if to counteract the the exile, God gave them blessings, and God gave them the abundance of children among among other blessings which they got, so to speak. So the the six children, or according to some commentaries, six D children in one shot. Don't ask me how they did that. But either way, that that only started really when the exit, once the exile started. So while Jacob was still alive, the famine stopped, and that was in his in his uh, merit. But that was only like with the effect of the holy man coming to a place, and the famine stopped. However, the the special blessings that were only specific to the Jewish children, to the Jewish people, that was specifically come for, came specifically from the exile itself. Perfect. Now you're muted, so you can't talk. Okay. So basically, <laughs> now, uh, so basically like this. Um, there's a, a lot. Uh, this whole thought that I wanted to say over has a lot of um, 
peripheral ideas, a lot of it, it ties into a hundred different things. And I could spend five hours or maybe even more talking about the topic in general. But I wanted to talk specifically about what, ha what has to do with our parsha and specifically locally, what it has to do with Gullus, what it has to do with exile, exile itself. Okay. Now I'm going to start off with a question and the the answers that I will get from, from you guys, from the participants, will basically segue into the, the next question, which is really going to stump everyone. Because when I heard this, it really stumps me. So unless you guys are really, really awesome guys, hopefully we'll be able to get a deep understanding of the answer. But as it stands now, before the class, I'm pretty convinced that this is going to stump everyone. Okay? So the first question you guys should all have some semblance of an answer. But with the second question, I don't think we're going to have an answer. First question is like this. We know that God had a plan in mind to send the Jews to Egypt. Okay? The Egypt is like, the, the exile of Egypt, is like a, we call it a Kor Habarzel. Kor Habarzel is like a, a I always get it mixed up, like a kiln. Like a very, very hot, hot, hot oven where it's used to, 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 to melt out the impurities. You put in a big rock with little or gold or silver ores, and then you put it in this oven and it melts out all the impurities and you're left with pure gold. So the exile is meant, so to speak, to take out all the impurities. And in essence, it's very brutal. It's hard. It's, it's torturous. It's not painful. But you come out stronger, come out more resilient, you come out shinier, etc. That's the, in essence, so what, what Galas is, okay? So by mistake, instead of asking you the first question, I told you the answer, my bad. Okay, like I was going to ask you, what's the purpose of exile? What's the purpose of Galas? That's the purpose of exile. That's the purpose of Galas. Now, here's the question. This is the, the question that I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to give the floor to you. And anyone, please share any answer you want, no matter how out of the box it may be. And we'll see where we go. So we have 70 tzaddikim, 70 very, very holy men. Yaakov, his children, his grandchildren, all go into Egypt. Okay? Very, very, very holy, holy people. And who comes out of Egypt? Right? 600,000 people who are barely, barely, knowing they're all broken up spiritually, I'm talking about. They, can, they barely can, can have any semblance of Ju Judaism in them. They have three traits that they held on to very tight. They, they kept their names, they kept their clothing, and they kept their language. But besides for that, they were really in the lowest of the low, the 49th level, the, the second lowest level of, of really like almost the rock, almost rock bottom. So what happened to the big, big thing, the big belief that we believe that and, and the knowledge that we know it's true God tells us this, and the Torah tells us that the exile is supposed to purify us. It's supposed to make us better, better people. So to make the nation into a better nation. What happened to that? It doesn't make any sense. Totally backfired. God sent us in, and as it was going on, whoops, this is not working out too well. No, that's not what happened, obviously. God doesn't make those mistakes. But it seems like really, like thing, they really got messed up. Something really went wrong. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. That, is, that, is that question a compelling question? I think that's a very, very compelling question. Don't you? 
Yeah. No, no response. No response. Two, well, two, two, if, if I may, two things. One, they were galvanized as an as an end result, and two, in a sense, they were an, uh, they were an, uh, an empty vessel, an empty cleat, and and then they were they were able to get filled up so that ultimately at Sinai they had Achtus, you know, one one heart, one mind. So they they were they were brought to their basic state, and then Hashem invigorated their their spiritual selves. Okay, that, that that's possible. It's going to be, but but the real. I wouldn't say flaw to that argument, but the real issue is that there's no there's no indication that there was anything wrong with the tribes. There's no indication that there was anything wrong with the way Jacob lived life and the way he connected to God. So why didn't God just let them continue on in their path? I mean, the whole idea was to make them to better people. It seems like even if at the end of the day, we managed to squeeze out alive. God had performed a lot of miracles. We got us out. And he gave us the Torah. And we, we managed to, to, to bear, scrape through. And we became the Jewish people. But it seems not only does it not like, help us grow. It seems like it wasn't necessary. And perhaps I would say the opposite. It had an adverse effect. That's why. That's that's why I think. I think this is a very compelling question. Okay, and the answer is, is obviously going to be just before we start and build on the answer. The answer is that we're looking at it all wrong. We're looking at it backwards. Of course, that's going to be the answer, and we're going to try to build on it and try to explain and express this. So there's a medrash, a very interesting medrash, in Parshas Bereshit, right in the beginning of the Torah, and it says like this. Obviously, on a very very simple literal level, this medrash is very cryptic, like some medrashim are, and I will tell you what the medrash says. The medrash says that God wanted to create the world, so he turns around to his malachim, to the angels, and he says, what do you guys think? And he has four angels. He has chesed. Chesed is, is kindness. Chesed says, I'm pro. We're pro creating a world. There's going to be unlimited amount of chesed, so the attribute of chesed is very happy to create a world. God looks at MS, truth, and truth says, meh, not into it. The world is a world of falsehood. It's a world, Alma de Shikra, it's a world of shakar, a world of lies. If you create the world, this is not going to work. Tzedek, right, righteousness, says, I'm pro. A lot of beautiful things, righteous people will come out of the world. Okay, Shalom, peace, meh, peace says no. Peace says, this is not going to work. There's going to be wars, fighting going on. It's not going to work. Okay, very cryptic measures. What happens? God takes MS, the attribute of truth, throws it to the ground and says, oh, now, so to speak, if you would say it over literally, now we only have two against one instead of two against two. We're good. Create the world. Something like that. Obviously, we're not going to learn literally. Okay, so how do we understand this? We have the truth, MS, that's getting thrown to the ground, so to speak. So there's a concept that was set over by Ramesh Shapira, other people also, of Schwab, of Schwab from, from Washington Heights. Use, um, big rabbis, they set over this concept, and it's a very, very, very deep concept, but it's integral to understanding this, the world, how the world runs. And it goes as follows. They said there's two types of truth. There's two types of truth. There's one type of truth 
that's called the MS of Shemayim, the truth of the heavens, the truth, the, the, the ultimate truth. And this type of truth is 100% true without a doubt. An example of this would be prophecy. Prophecy is 100% guaranteed truth. That's it. Anything in the next world, anything upstairs, 100% guaranteed truth. And then Rav Shapira says there's a second level of truth that's called the truth of this world. MS Haaretz, the truth of this of this world, of the, of the natural world. He derives it from a Pasuk. The Pasuk says, MS Me'aretz Titzmach, the truth will, will sprout out from the ground. And this type of truth is not absolute truth, but it's still truth. And an example for such a thing is like this. I'm just going to give a little bit of a, call it a cheesy example, but it's a good example, right? You come home from, 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 uh, from work and your wife prepares you a beautiful meal or the opposite. You, 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 the, the woman comes home and, and the husband asks, do you like my thing? Do you like my, my watch? Or whatever the case is, and you're going to roll your eyes. And you say, you know what? This supper, this dinner is the most delicious dinner in the world. Or your dress, ah, I could not, could not even imagine a more beautiful dress than that, whatever it may be. So in essence, it's not 100% true. It, it perhaps is not 100% true because it perhaps may not be the most delicious meal you've ever tasted. But God wants you to say that, and that is considered truth in that circumstance. It's considered truth. Is it a perfect truth? No, it's not. But on a certain level, it's considered truth. And that's considered truth in this world. And if you really dig down to the to the kishkas of this world, this whole world is, is all, all fantasy. There's very little absolute truth in this world. Fantasy may be a little extreme, but there's very little actual truth in this world. Everything is all built on perception and understanding and all that type of stuff. What's 100% guaranteed truth? That's it. That's very, very limited amounts in this world. Anything in the next world. In this world, you have very limited amounts where something's 100% guaranteed truth. And in essence, where you find a lot of people are very, very black and white. Black and white people. A lot of people are very gray. And in general, us human beings, we, we live very nicely in a black and white world. Right? You have a rule book. Everything you do, you do this. It works. You do that. It doesn't work. You do the right things. It's good. And that's we 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 suffer a lot when life is gray. You know, I say they you know the joke. They say everyone in this world suffers when life is gray. Besides, for lawyers, lawyers live in the gray because everything in, in law is, is gray, gray, gray. That's where they make all their money. But besides, for lawyers, most of us, I don't think there's any lawyers. Are there any lawyers here? No. Okay, fine. Most most of us non-lawyers, we we like things to be clear, like things to be black and white. And black and white, the real black and white is, is truth. The more we can separate black and white, black goes all the way in this side, white goes all the way in that side. That's how we we can see life, we can see truth. Okay? He tells us like this, Torah the written Torah, is the truth from upstairs. It's guaranteed 100% certain truth. There's nothing untrue about the Torah Shebechsav. Torah the Talmud, the Mishnah, it's full of things that aren't true. I don't mean it in a, in a negative way. Uh, people are jumping. But I mean it's like this. Every Gemara, every piece of Talmud has a question, an answer, 
something that's spoken out and then it's refuted. So every single thing in the Gemara that's refuted, it's still part of the Gemara. We don't take it and throw it in the garbage, right? When one of the of the of the Amaraim say one thing and the other Amara says, no, I think the Allah is like that. They're both in the Talmud. They're both part of the Torah. We learn it in, in Kola in the morning. The whole day, that's what we're fighting about. We're all talking about this. This is all part of the Is the whole Torah true? It's true. That is a type of truth that survives and lives in this world. In the next world, there's no such thing. In the next world, everything's clear. You have Torah Shabbat Chzav. Everything's clear. Um, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole um, idea of what type of Torah we're going to have in the next world. I'm not going there. My point is basically that there's a level of truth that is in a, 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 a physical world truth. That's not the, the level of truth that's 100% true from the next one. <laughs> okay. So says from Moshe Shapira as follows. What is our purpose in this world? A purpose in this world is to gain is to grow and have spiritual perfection, okay? However, however, we all know that when none of us, not a single human being ever in this world, ever, 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 historically, has ever been perfect. Never happened. Human beings are not perfect. There are four people that were so righteous that didn't do any sins, and that is, that's what the Torah tells us, but that doesn't mean they were perfect. Didn't mean they, they mean that they didn't do any negative sins, but it doesn't mean that they perfected them positively, positively to the most ultimate level because, because there's no such thing. A physical human being cannot be perfect. And that's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want us to be perfect. Okay. So what what is our purpose in this world? Our purpose in this world and our purpose as a nation as the Jewish nation, is to build on our imperfections and to be able to, and the purpose of, of, of Judaism really is to be able to, is to or, or any human being for that matter, is to be able to build on ourselves to become as good as we can be. But we are not living in a perfect world. We don't do that. That's not what we're like. Our life is all about. And I'll bring you another proof. Very interesting proof. It's a very, very interesting question that I'm going to ask everyone. And the answer is, it's not really, it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is the proof to this point, which goes as follows. God created a Jewish nation. God created the whole world for us, for the Jewish nation. No, I'll go back, I'll go back even, even earlier. God created a perfect world. He created Adam in Gan Eden. How long did Adam last in Gan Eden? Does anyone know? Everyone could shout out, but you got to unmute yourself because I can't hear anyone. <laughs> he didn't make it till Shabbos. He didn't even make it to Shabbos and he was created on Arab Shabbos. He didn't even make it through the first day like everyone else who was muted also sh shouted out. But not only that, he was created all the way at the end of the day, so he didn't even make it through an hour. He barely before made it through an hour. Sin, you're saying, Pardon me? Before he, before he sinned, you're before saying. Before he sinned, and he got kicked out of Gan Eden. Gan Eden, the, the, the Garden of Eden. So he didn't. So what happens? God made a mistake. God didn't understand how human beings work. That's not, how, that's not what happened. God created him. Why God had to create the world in a perfect place and then send him out an hour later 
that's a different discussion. Perhaps just to show a taste of what perfection is, what we're striving for, and before he left it, perhaps. But that's not a discussion. The idea is that humans can't last in perfection. We aren't perfect people. We just can't do it. God didn't expect Adam to last more than that. That wasn't the point. The point was for him to live in this world, not to live in the perfect world. Okay? Um, as we got to Har Sinai, we got the first luchos, the first set of luchos. Okay, the first tablets. Anyone know how long those lasted for? Can you guess? Also, didn't last very long, and they got smashed. What happened? Those were the perfect tablets created by God, and we, the Jewish people, we couldn't, it didn't last very long. They got smashed before we even got them. The only person who ever got them was who? Moshe. Moses, he got them, he got them, and then he smashed them right away. So we see very clear, again, perfect tablets. The first tablets were perfect. Didn't work, didn't last very long. Segue, segue into the, the Jews in, in Israel and, and the, the two temples. So since the year 2448, that's when the year the Jews got the the Torah and they left Egypt till today is is five seven eight two. Can anyone do math? Figure out how many years we're in between. It's around three, I say thirty three hundred years. Five seven eight two minus two four five seven five five seven eight three. So we're around we're basically somewhere around thirty three hundred years. You doing a calculator? Thirty three thirty five. Not bad. I can become I can become an accountant. Okay. So, <laughs> so 3,300 years. Okay. Does anyone know how long the Jews were together as a nation with the temple? At 10, 12 tribes. So the answer is I'll just I don't know if anyone knows these things. It's a little bit um get lost in the shuffle. Around seven, eight hundred years, they were together, and then another add another couple hundred years for the second temple when they weren't together, but they had a temple. So it was roughly a thousand years, maybe 1200 years, top to bottom, okay? So we have over 66, maybe even 70% of the time Jewish people became a nation till the present that the Jews were in exile. So imagine, Leslie, this is for you. Imagine you were a principal or a teacher of a school and you found out I'm sorry. Imagine you were going to a school and you were interviewing the principal or teacher of a school and you found out that 90% of the students in the school were suspended from school 90% of the time. Would you think, would there be like a red flag on this school? 90% of the students are suspended 90% of the time, right? You wouldn't go, eh, they're doing a pretty good job, pretty okay. Let's just give them a pass. We'll just let them go. We'll come back next year to see if they're still hanging in there. Right? That seems a little bit ludicrous, right? What about 60%? Maybe not as bad, but still pretty wacky. So we have the Jewish people who are in exile for over two-thirds, close to 70%, or I didn't do the math, but around 70% of the time, we're in exile. So is there a flaw with the Jewish people? Is there something with the... With the I'm sorry. Is there a flaw with the plan, with God's plan? There's something wrong with God's plan? What's going on here? Clearly, if I dare say so, I would never say so myself, but this is what Rabbi Shapira says, and this is what Rabbi Schwab says. And this is the basic idea that God created this world, and we're supposed to live in imperfection. 
we are supposed to live in imperfection. We are supposed to realize that we are not perfect people. And us living in Godless, living in exile, although yes, part of it is a punishment for different things that we've done wrong in the past, but a big chunk of it is that we're supposed to be here and we're supposed to elevate ourselves. We're supposed to live in this world this imperfect world, and we're supposed to grow in this imperfect world. Imagine if a person killed himself every time he didn't he didn't pray, he skipped the prayer, or every time he desecrated Shabbos, or whatever stage in life you're holding. I don't know what everyone's holding, but anyone could use their own example. Imagine he just just beat himself over it. How can I do this again? Right? There would be no one in this world left that would be able to live a normal life because we all. We are all, none of us are perfect. We are all imperfect people. And that's really the lesson we're trying to bring out of here. And the purpose of the Jewish nation and the purpose of exile and all these things, they're not just to, 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 to blow out the whole thing, to give us some pain and suffering so we should come out stronger. It's that we're supposed to live in an imperfect world. And now I want to go back to our Parsha. Yaakov, one of the most perfect, righteous people in the world. He comes down to Egypt, 70 people, 70 pure righteous tzaddikim. Did they personally, did they, the 70 of them, did they need exile to perfect themselves? No. Because they were so elevated, they were able to live in a perfect world, so to speak. Maybe not as perfect as Adam Harishon, who got right, got bumped out after an hour. Maybe not in that world, but in the imperfect world that we live in, they live in such a high level, such an elevated level, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that that level is completely unattainable for the, 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 the masses, for the Jewish nation. So for them personally, maybe, maybe they were good, maybe they were righteous, but that's not what God wants from us. God, not, God doesn't want us to be perfect. God doesn't want us to live in a perfect world. God needs us to live in exile in this world. So God put the Jewish people through the, through the exile, through the Egyptian Korhabarzal, through the, the kiln, the to bring out us, how we can grind ourselves through an imperfect world, not perfect world like Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and all the tribes. They were way more, way holier and way more righteous. And they were really, really, really special people. But we are, that's not our goal. That's what we're trying to do. Our goal, which what we're trying to do is we're trying to take ourselves in this imperfect world and look at ourselves and try to make something out of what we have, out of ourselves, out of this imperfect world. We look around us and we, we could give up. We could say, what, what does God want from us? How could he even imagine that we can grow and elevate ourselves in a world that we live in today in 2023? What, what, what does he expect from us? You imagine uh, they say uh, that, that what they say, what a, what's the good example? What was the word? Um, uh, it's not a, it's, this is a 50, this is like 50 years old. They say what a, what a high school based Yaakov girl or, or boy, but this is just the way I heard it, um, sees and is exposed to with one subway ride in New York City from her house to the school is what a Jewish uh, person in the shtetl in the town in Europe was not exposed to in their whole life. That's, that's what they, what they, what they say. And this is probably 50 years ago when people, um, but this is in today's day and age, the, the, what we what we live with, in a spiritual sense, we live with in a world that is completely backwards, a completely backwards world we live in. Yet, 
we're told we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do the mitzvahs. We gotta stay away from the virus. We gotta stay away from sin. We gotta, we gotta do what we're supposed to do. And it's a, it's an endless, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an uphill battle. And it seems like it's completely impossible. Torah is telling us no, no, to be perfect. That's not our goal. Our goal is to take what we have, take the imperfect world, and make the the, the way they say it is take the take the lemons and make lemonade out of them. That's what our that's what our purpose is. Our purpose is to dance in the rain, not to try to run around it and try to hide in the shade, in in the in the whatever you want to call it. Our purpose <laughs> is to run and 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 to take our tools, take what we have, and to grow with it. Our, our, that's in essence what our purpose is. So I just want to, uh, that's, that's basically the thought that I thought was the most beautiful thought in the world. I, I really, um, I really want to get to something on the parasha. I see you want to ask a question, please go for it. So how would you compare, say, for example, the Shvatim who lived long, full lives with, um, with Adam Harishon, who was only able to live in Gan Eden for a very brief period of time. Um, but yet the Shvatim, they were not paragons of, you know, honor themselves. I mean, they were guilty of a lot of Averas. I mean, they they killed people, they murdered people, they sold their own brother into slavery, they lied, you know, they lied to their father, they were their morals were maybe not so, you know, so epis. I mean, you know, they broke a lot of the the big ten. Right. So so you're bringing up a very, very important question. And it's 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 the answer is, is it may not satisfy you because it just may not satisfy you. And it could be there's deeper answers. It could be there's deeper answers. But just off the cuff, the answer is basically that, first of all, what I what I meant by the tribes all being perfect, I don't I didn't mean literally in a perfect. I mean, no, no, no. I, I right. even. So yeah, obviously. So when I said that other Mauritian, so Adam, when he lived in, in Gan Eden, so that level of perfection of the perfect world of upstairs, of the perfect, perfect world, that was a level that he wasn't able to reach because no human being is ever able to get there. However, in even in this world, there is a level of, of perfection that we can attain that doesn't need exile, doesn't need God. You can just live life the way the, the, the patriarchs live life. They live life, they just grew and they understood God and they developed themselves till everything became crystal clear, obviously, in this world. And in that level, the tribes also really, really personified that. And although all those things you brought up are 100% true, and the Torah really, really brings out a lot of like really, I would say, negative stories about the different things that the tribes did, we have to understand that if you read the, the commentaries, they really, really, really talk about all of those things and they really explain them. And every single one of the sins that the tribes are guilty for were, are all explained in many different ways, how they're not really sins and they're looked at in a real, real, real magnified way and looked at in a magnifying glass. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. 
I'll give you one example. The example that you mentioned about selling the tribe. So forever and ever and ever, this is, I think I'm just going to use this and continue talking about this for the rest of the class because if I run through this and then I run through the next thing I'm going to say, we're going to kill both of them. So we're just going to talk about this, okay? So so like this, the, the, the tribes were, were, were allegedly, were, they were guilty of, of, of selling um, their brother Yosef. Okay, so the question is, what happened? How did, were these holy people, how did they do such a degrading thing by selling their brother Yosef? Okay, so the answer the, the commentators tell us really is that they, they, they felt that he deserved to be killed. And they had a, they had a court of law and they paskined. They had a court of law, they made it, they convened and they paskined based yeah. on the evidence they had that he deserved to die. So really, in essence, what he did wrong was, now then we can jump back to say, so then was Yosef a tzaddik? If they, they, they condemned him to death, so why did they condemn him to death? Well, he said, Lashon Hara, he said gossip against them. He told gossip to Abraham, to, 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 to Jacob. Fine. So now we're going to catch twenty-two. So we're basically saying, fine. So now they're righteous. Now Jake. Now now Yosef is at fault. So so all of these things are very confusing. But the Torah tells us, the commentaries tell us that in essence, what happened was this is all part of God's master plan, which was God needed the Jews to go to Egypt, like we talked. We just spoke about. We just um, spoke about throughout the whole class, and what. What God needed is God needed the Jews to have the ability to to thrive. Or thrive is the wrong word, but to survive in Egypt. And how did they survive in Egypt? How were they able to do that? They had a one tribe, Shevet Levi, the, the Levites. They were were not um, forced to work. They were able to stay away from the whole exile. How? Does anyone know how? No, no, you mean I, they were not enslaved. They were well, in a literal definition. I mean, they couldn't leave Egypt. They were stuck there. They couldn't leave, but they were not enslaved. They, they were their, free, basically. They prayed. They were. So, they were a priestly class. So very good. So, on a very practical level, it was because they were a priestly class. Do you know who was the one? When did it happen that that they got classified as a priestly class? Why were they, why, why were they destined? Why were they why were they given that honor? So the, to, to there's separate a few Shimon answers. and Levi. Pardon me. To to separate the 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 fighting or the mock locus between Shimon and Levi. Um, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think that the reason, uh, sorry for being so blunt. The, the reason, the it's reason, fine. no, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I don't, the reason, the reason is because when Yosef came down to Mitzrayim, Yosef had special privileges. He became the viceroy. He was able to have special powers. He put it in to the, uh, among other things he put in there. If he put in a 20% tax and other things. But one of the things he put in, it was a chok. It was a law, a decree that was there forever. At least, I shouldn't say forever, but it was there um, that wasn't able to be taken away. That the priests didn't have to work. 
That, that was what Yosef put that in there, really. It, maybe it was Paro together with Yosef. Yosef got the stamp of approval from, from his boss, from Pharaoh. But in essence, Joseph was the one who put it in. How was he able to put it in there? Because he was the king. He was the second to the king. How, where, why was he second to the king? How did he end up in Egypt? Right? How did he end up in Egypt 22 years before everyone else that he was able to become the king, the viceroy? Because he got sold to Egypt. Why did he get sold in Egypt? What happened? How did he end up in Egypt? Why was he sold? He was sold in Egypt because he was thrown into the pit and the slave, he got sold as a slave. Why was he thrown into the pit? Because the brothers wanted to kill him, but then Reuben told him, no, he just put him in the pit. So all of this whole story, now we can nitpick and say that maybe perhaps they did a sin, they didn't do a sin. So I, it could be they did, it could be they didn't, I don't know. I mean, I do know, but 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 the idea is that everything has has a a, a a master plan. So God was really manipulating everyone behind the scenes to make this all work. And I always want to share with you one anecdote about uh, not anecdote, sorry, one proof from the 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 famous um call it a story. It's not really a story because it's a whole thing. There's a famous uh, uh Sequence of events, I guess it is. It's put in 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 the in the in the in the prayers and the davening. It's put into like one one prayer, one pisman. It's called one. I don't know how do you call a pisman in English. Like a poem. Poem is the wrong word. Uh, when you say how do you say like when you in in a piot. How do you say piot in English? Like when you read the 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 the, the prayers on on Yom Kippur or on Tishabav, those. Um, prayers. Either way, I don't know how to say it in English. Either way, there's. I think it's maybe like an epic poem. Whatever it is. Either way, it could be. Um, if anyone has an article, city, you can just flip through and tell me what what, what what they call it. Either way, the point is that there's a there's a term uh, an era in in Judaism that it was called the Asara Heruge Malchus. There was ten people that were. Brutally, brutally murdered by the by the by the Roman emperor, Roman king, and he tells them, um, "What's the what's the halacha? What's the what's the the law if a a, a, a guy kills sells his brother and, and kills and, and kills him, whatever it is?" And he said, and the, and the the rabbi said, "He has to get killed." So the emperor says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna take revenge for your brother, uh, who made him the the." the, the Chief of police to, to whatever right anti-Semitism made him the, the chief of police, but the idea is that it was considered a a a a, a uh, repentance. Or how do you say it again? Uh, it was considered a a, a mechila for the for the the selling of the brothers. There's ten tribes, so to speak, that sold um um Yosef because his brother Benjamin. Wasn't it wasn't there himself as one? So that's twelve minus two is ten, and therefore there were ten holy rabbis, biggest rabbis of the Jewish community. They got murdered and destroyed in the most brutal, terrible manner because of this. Okay, and this was a a, a this was this was so to speak mida connected mida was um, in in response to the to the, the death of these people. So here's the question. What took a thousand years? It was around a thousand years later. What took a thousand years for, for Hashem 
to, so to speak, wake up to pay back for for this selling of the of the of the of Yosef. A thousand years later, come on, like what happened? The Jews got punished a thousand years later. What happened for the first year, the second year, the third year, the fourth year, the fifth year, the sixth year, the tenth year, the twentieth year, the fiftieth year? Then what happened? What took a thousand years? Anyone ever thought of that question? A thousand years. So I is heard it, a yeah, go for ten it. generations is significance of something. I think. I mean, even if there was a thousand years, it would knock off a lot more than ten generations. I think. That's true. Right? It would be a thousand divided true. by whatever number you right. stretch a guy to ninety nine. Yeah. Right. Um, so um, the idea is like this. I heard a beautiful answer. And with this answer, I think we can we can bring out our point. And this also brings out the, a lot of other ideas, but it's very late for that. The answer is like this: We know there's a famous concept in Judaism that when a person dies and leaves this world, his soul goes up to the next world. And in general, the soul is very stagnant in the next world. It's very hard to grow in the next world. This world is a world of rising and falling we, we grow and fall and the next world we are what we are and we are that inter- eternally for the most part except for very very few exceptions one exception is that on a person's yard side on the person the day that a person passed away so every year he comes up and he gets the merits that his we call it his legacy, but his actions that he created, his children, grandchildren, and all the things that he did. He gave charity, built a building, he, he built a community, a school, this and that. He was a teacher. His his, his students have have kids. All these things, they all get taken into account, and his soul gets elevated. Okay, and we say kaddish on the yard side, etc. And the yard side is a very big day because it's a meaningful day because it's once a year where the person's soul can get elevated. Okay, so I this is I heard this fascinating answer. I, I I think it's one of the most beautiful things that really really brings this this thought this topic down to earth. Every single year on their yard site, the shvat and the tribes got judged, and they said, and God said, at your level, this was you're perfect. You didn't do any sins. This selling of your brother was not considered a sin. It was considered part of the master plan. And you were perfectly righteous. And they got elevated to the next level based on whatever they they did. And year number two, they got elevated even higher. Year number three, they got elevated even higher based on all the merits and all the things. Year number four, year number five, year number six, year number 10, 20, 30. A thousand years later, a thousand years later, means they got elevated. Their soul got elevated a thousand times, 1,000 times. Then God says, now you're so holy that on this level, on this level, God says, I consider it a sin. On this level, a thousand levels higher than the level they passed away on, God says, this level, that's considered a sin. And then they were punished for it, so to speak. Their great, great, great grandchildren, their descendants were punished for the sin of selling their brother. So we see from here that although, yes, everything in this world, if you look at the Torah and say, look at it in black and white, they did a sin, they sold their brother, terrible people. But in reality, it took a thousand years 
for, for them to be on such a perfect level. Like we always say, the more perfect the person is, the bigger the magnifying glass is, the more Hashem judges. And this is something that they were completely righteous for. They weren't taken to task for that. But a thousand years later, they elevated the soul so much that then they were considered guilty for, for, the, for the sin. So was it a sin? Yes, on a certain level. 100%. Can't take it away. On a certain level, it was a sin. But we have to put it in perspective. We always have to put these things in perspective. We can never remove them from perspective. And when we remove these things from the perspective, we lose the whole, we lose the whole, the whole thing. Anything taken out of perspective can be, can, can seem totally, I remember, I'm going to end with this. I remember there's a certain Tintin video or, or book or depend on which era you live in. And there's this same cartoon. Um, there was this guy who had invented this cool machine. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. The guy, Calculus. He invented this cool machine and, and the, the, the other guys, the bad guys stole it. And they were demonstrating that they were blowing up this big, blowing up this big city. So they have this video camera reel. And they have this thing and have this little machine guy that looks like a, a TV uh and uh, what do you call it again? A satellite dish, and all of a sudden, boom! It explodes, blows up, and this whole city crumbles. And the general and the president of whichever Bulgaria is jumping up and down, all excited, right? Because they, they, wow, this thing really works! It blew up a city. And so they move the screen away, and there's a little model with like I don't know, like a foot by a foot. And you know, you remember this, right? So that's I, I, I that's that's what it's like to take things out of perspective. We look at this beautiful. Big city that got blown up and exploded, and really it was this little model, right? So we have to remember that when things are taken out of perspective, they could look perfectly real, but it doesn't make any sense. We always have to remember to keep everything in perspective. So have a good Shabbos, everyone. Shabbos.